0: Good morning, church. How are we? Good. Woo! Yes. Let your energy match the heat that's in the room, and that will be great for our time today, right? Hey, if you don't know me, my name's um, Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Kessid, and this is Larry, part of our pastoral uh, staff as well. Um, to introduce today, I'm really excited, uh, and I'll start by sharing about this man right here. So, Larry Shelton has been a mentor in my life for the um, last seven or eight years now. And he, by the grace of God, has not only mentored me through personal relationship, but also through, he's a published author and guidance and everything in between. And so through this man, he has he had this wonderful way of mentoring me. As he knew, I'm kind of a learner and I need to wrestle through things. He would constantly just start giving me books, right? And he'd be like, hey, I know you have a lot to say, but why don't you read this and then we'll discuss it, right? (laughs) This guy actually knows what he's saying and we'll wrestle through this. So he has, over time, given me a ton of books. And one of the persons that he pointed me towards is our speaker coming up uh, later, whose name is Mark McMinn, who um, I'll let Larry share uh, as a colleague, but me as just a, a guy who is looking for guidance in life, and really appreciates not only sound biblical work, but people that speak and share from their heart. Mark is that. And so we're really blessed to have him with us today. But I'm going to let Larry share a little bit about Mark, and then he'll invite him up.
1: Thank you. you try that one. Thank you this morning. I really appreciate all that Chris is saying. Uh, I ask God to forgive me for enjoying it, but Anyway, it's good to be here. It's good to be anywhere, actually, at my age. But today, we're going to be hearing a wonderful teaching by Dr. Martin McMahon. I was on faculty for a number of years with Dr. McMahon at uh, George Fox University and Seminary. And he is a graduate of Lewis and Clark College and has a PhD in clinical psychology from Vanderbilt University which is one of the top universities in the country. He is on the PsyD faculty at, at Wheaton College, or he was on the faculty at Wheaton College, and is now Professor of Psychology and Director of Faith Integration in the General Department of Clinical Psychology at George Fox University. He's been on the field. He's, he's a professional psych- psychologist. Uh, he's a shrink who trains other people who are shrinks. So. He a, has a wonderful message for us today that's really going to challenge us and give us some direction. Mark has uh, edited or written, uh, I think, something like 17 books and now writes software for Apple uh, in this area. He's a leader in spiritual formation for, for the students, as I said, at George Fox, and is married to Lynn. She's here this morning, and they have three grown children. And I understand that uh, they have a farm that has chickens and honeybees and who knows what else, and uh, he's one of my favorite people and speakers. I introduce to you Dr. Mark McMinn.
2: Thank you. It's it's a delight to be with you. I was sitting through, enjoying the music, and there is a... I've always been a fan of ASL. I don't know anything about it other than just loving the beauty of how it takes to the human body and expresses these ideas. And the the phrase that we were singing, through it all, my eyes are on you. And I thought, oh, we could just all learn the ASL for that and then go home, because that's my message. That's really all I, that's all I have to say, and it's such a beautiful way when you see the, the, the physical body express that. Uh, let me just name something. It's really nice to be with you, um, but I want to name this right up front. I, uh, the topic today is humility. Um, uh, the title of the talk is Humility 3D. And I want to name that you don't know me. And humility is really something that you earn a right to talk about. And uh, I haven't earned that right, because you don't know me. So if you're feeling some suspicion about that, I think that's the right thing to feel. I would be too. Uh, Let me just name it, put it out there, and then hopefully over the next 30 minutes or so, some of that perhaps might subside. I want to start with an image of of humility, uh, Humility 3D, and it's it's an image that I find take a lot of meaning in for, for several reasons. One is, I love the idea of journey. I look at this picture and I see journey. And every time I talk about humility, I'm, I'm sort of bombarded with thoughts of times I've failed to be humble, and there are so many. And yet I recognize that this is part of the journey, that we fail and we stand up, and by the grace of Jesus, we get back on the path. So I love the idea of journey here. I also like the idea of shoes, because there's something about walking in another's that I think really speaks to empathy, the, the, the capacity to see what life would be like from the other. And that's very much part of humility. And then, I love the dirt in this picture. You know, the word humility actually comes from the same root word as the word humus, which should not be confused with hummus, especially if you have a bowl of chips in front of you. But humus is the sort of rich, organic matter of dirt. Uh, Lisa and I run a little farm in Newburgh, Oregon, where we grow berries and vegetables, and we spend a lot of time every summer in the dirt. And there's something that's just so grounding about that, something that helps, helps us understand, I think, this journey of humility. Well, I've spent my career trying to blend together two things. One is psychology, and the other is faith. And at times, it feels like I'm sort of an outsider in both groups. But, uh, but that took a turn a few years ago when I started working in an area called positive psychology. And some of you might be saying, huh, what's that? Psychologists have done a good job over the years looking at what goes wrong with people, but there's a new movement in psychology looking at what goes right with people, and it's been really fun and engaging to be part of this. And and because I've been really interested in how it looks in the church, Uh, it's been just a a great sort of opportunity to think about topics like forgiveness and gratitude and humility and wisdom and how how those come alive in the context of faith communities. It's exciting to hear some of the stories of what God is doing here in your midst, and I've heard some of those this morning, and what a beautiful thing, and these are positive things. I wanna just show you some, uh, forgiveness for example, just show you some benefits to forgiveness. People who forgive have lower blood pressure, they have better cholesterol, they have lower heart rate, they sleep better. I, I won't go through the whole list, but, but you can see there's all these physical benefits and there's emotional benefits too to forgiveness. There's a recent study that I, that's not up here that even showed that if you forgive someone, you're able to jump a little bit higher than you were before you, were, before you did the forgiving. I figure in my case it makes the difference between a one-inch and a two-inch vertical leap, right? Um, but forgiveness has these benefits, and if you look at gratitude, you see, you see the same thing. People have more positive experiences toward life, they, ha- they, feel, they cope better, they feel more energy, They're, they go to the doctor less. People who are grateful have less physical ailments than others. Um, there's so many benefits to these sort of positive things that we're starting to study in psychology. And then one of them is another one is humility, and that's what we're talking about today, sort of humility in three dimensions. Um, but there's all these benefits again to, to humility, including humble people are more grateful and they're more forgiving. The benefits that I just talked about. But there's also things like self-esteem. I mean, who would have guessed that humble people actually have better self-esteem than others? So there's there's these interesting things that that I've been so privileged to study over these last few years, and and it's humility that that we're gonna talk about today. Now maybe I've convinced you that these things are good for you, forgiveness and gratitude and humility, but stop for a moment and notice how I've convinced you. I've convinced you by, by telling you that they're good for you, they're good for me, and yet that's not necessarily the point of virtue in the Christian life. So I wanna sort of flesh that out in different ways. It's, it's not about personal benefits, and, and here, it, here again, through it all, my eyes are on you. This is, this, we all need Jesus, we all need Jesus. And this is the point of the church, to help us focus, to remember, to focus on Jesus. So, so this is where we're gonna to come to, to the passage that we're gonna look at today in Philippians chapter two, which is probably the preeminent chapter on the topic of humility in the Bible. And this is a passage, let me get, set a little context for you here. Uh, Philippians, uh, the church at Philippi is a church that deeply loves Paul. It's about 12 to 15 years old by the time that the letter was written. Paul writes to the church there. Paul also deeply loves the church. The church, by the way, has been very generous to Paul. They've given financially to him. He has a deep compassion and commitment to this church. But there's a problem. If you look at chapter 4 in Philippians, you find that there's some conflict emerging in this young church. There's some two leaders that can't, can't seem to agree on some things. And so they're, they're, they're facing this conflict. And Paul's writing this letter in, Paul, in part to help address the conflict that they're facing. So in chapter 2, then of Philippians, we come across this passage, given that context of conflict, and l- l- listen to these words. Therefore. And your relationships with one another have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and and being found in appearance as a human being, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We could camp out here a long time. I won't, but we could. The first four or five centuries of the early church was to figure out this thing called Christology, which is what is the nature of Jesus? And In the year 451 at the Council of Chalcedon, they sort of worked out, the leaders of the church sort of worked out this formula that we've had ever since, which is Jesus was fully human and fully divine. And a lot of people will point back several centuries before to these words of Paul in Philippians 2 as the first Christology, the sort of first statement of who it is that Jesus is. So here we have this this early Christology. In your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. Now, let's fast forward to the 20th century. Karl Barth is a Swiss theologian in the 20th century, and he looks at this passage and he talks about something. He says it's it's the absurd contrast. And look at it from Barth's perspective. I think he's absolutely right. There's one human being who's ever had the right to claim superiority over others, and that would be Jesus, the only person who ever has walked the planet who has the right to say, I am superior to you. What does Jesus do? He makes himself nothing. Now the rest of us, we don't have that right. What do we do? We sort of clamor to figure out who's best, who's, who's, on, top, who's on top of the pecking order, at least and I have chickens, so we think about pecking orders. That's sort of what we do, right? And Bart looks at this and he says, that's absurd. The only person who ever had a right to do that makes himself nothing. In Jesus, we see humility. So, what is humility? So historically, we've looked at it as the absence of pride, and there's some, there's some merit in that, but I don't think it's that helpful to define a thing by what it's not. So, let me, this is where we're going to move into the 3D part of, of what we're doing today. Let's look at three dimensions of humility. One of them is having a realistic view of self. As we grow in humility, we grow toward understanding ourselves realistically. Now, there's, there, we're prone to two errors in, in this. You can kind of picture a target, right? And, and there's, there's two errors. We can either think too poorly of ourselves, sort of see ourselves as worthless, or we can see ourselves as, as special. Uh, there's, a, there's a slide here that shows this. Yeah, so, so what we want is to sort of not go to either extreme, but to see a, have a sort of realistic view of who we are. Now, given that I'm a psychologist, you might assume that I'm going to say that the biggest problem we have is that we see ourselves as worthless, and we need to sort of boost up our view of ourselves. That is not actually what I'm going to say. It does happen, and it's tragic when it happens, that people think too poorly of themselves. But the bigger problem, and I'm going to show you quite a bit of evidence for this, the bigger problem is we tend to think too highly of ourselves. We live in a sort of selfie culture. I found this image that I think is kind of a so It sort of shows how much of our own visual space we take up, right? We sort of look and we take up a lot of our visual space looking at ourselves. There's some Gallup poll data that was kind of interesting. I'm a bit of a fan of David Brooks, who's a New York Times columnist, and he wrote this book called The Road to Character, which is a book about humility, and he cites this Gallup poll data from 1960, when they asked high school seniors, are you a very important person? 12% said yes. Gallup asked the same question in 2005, are you a very important person? 80% said yes. Now, I don't know. I'm not saying that one is better than the other. I it's possible that, that that 12% is sort of representing a problem that was corrected. But at least it shows that trend toward viewing ourselves more as special than once was the case. I'm reminded then of the words of Paul again in in a different letter to the church scattered throughout Rome where Paul writes, for the grace given me I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with faith God has distributed to each of you. Our tendency is to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. Let me show you some more data on this. I'm going to show you something. If you've ever had a statistics class, you'll, you'll probably recognize this graph that's going to show a normal, a bell, a bell curve, a sort of normal distribution. The way the bell curve works is 68% of people fall between one and two, between one standard deviation on either side of the mean. So, and I'm not making up this number. This is the way a bell curve is. It's just, that's what average is. 68% of us are average on most things. 16% will be above average, 16% will be below average. This is is the nature of what a a Bell distribution is. So you take something like like driving ability. 68% of us in this room, presumably, are average drivers. 16% of us are above average drivers. And sadly, 16% of us are below-average drivers, and this is the moment where you're hoping nobody is looking at you and winking, right? because that's not a good sign. So the question is, if 16% of us are above-average drivers, how many of us think we're above-average? The answer is 93%. If you look at the actual data, (laughs) 93% of people believe that they're above-average drivers. It's statistically impossible. Um, take any of the traits you see on the, on the screen here, and these are all traits where the average person believes himself or herself to be above average. Intelligence, leadership ability, social skills, all of these. We believed ourselves to be above average, which again is statistically impossible. Um, the Educational Testing Service asked one million high school seniors, they asked them this question, Uh, Compared uh, with others, how well do you get along with your peers? 100% of them believed that they were average or above, 60% believed that they were in the top 10%, and 25% said, I'm in the top 1% in terms of my ability to get along with my peers. So again, we have this sort of uh, surprising way of looking at ourselves. I have to tell you a quick story about driving, because. it just comes to mind, the 93% of us that believe we're above-average drivers. So when I was 15 years old, I was working in sort of this rural... My my grandparents lived near our farmhouse, and we were separated by three miles of gravel roads, and I had worked for my grandparents, and my grandmother, who just was in some early stages of dementia, was driving me home, And she had forgotten, apparently, that you're supposed to drive on the right side of the road. So we took the whole three-mile trip on the left side of the road, and we were coming up over the hill on these country roads, and I was always just praying that there wasn't a semi-truck coming, or a tractor, or a car coming the other way. But the irony in it was that the whole trip, she was telling me how she was one of the best drivers in the state of Oregon. (laughs) And it turns out, most of us, 93% of us, kind of think that way. The average person believes we're above average. Take college professors. I'm a college professor. Surely we're immune from this, right? Here's the data for college professors. 10% of us think we're average teachers. 63% of us believe we're above average, 25% truly exceptional again. It's just not possible. It's not possible. (laughs) Or take the Ten Commandments. Someone modernized the language of the Ten Commandments. And uh, what what it turns out, I could show you, you could look at these numbers a long time, but what it turns out is that people think they follow the Ten Commandments and other people don't. That's sort of the standard way we think about it. And one, one pollster put it this way, the average person believes he or she is better than the average person. That's just sort of the way it is. Now, I do want to make a quick disclaimer before moving on to the second dimension of humility. And that's, this is data from, the North, from North America. If you actually did the same thing in East Asia, you'd find just the opposite. People tend to have an undervaluing of the self. And in North America, we tend to have an overvaluing of the self. All right, so, one dimension of humility is a realistic view of ourselves, which is not that easy. A second dimension of humility is considering the other. Our vulnerability is to think too, much of our, too highly of ourselves, but the goal is not to flop to the other extreme, to start thinking poorly of ourselves. Either way, we've got a problem. Think about it this way. Um, this doesn't happen to me anymore, and it probably only has a few times in my life, but have you ever had that experience where you look in the mirror and you think, Ooh, I look good. Um, Or maybe you have the experience much more common for me these days where I look in the mirror and think, oh, what a mess. But see, either way, we're looking in the mirror. And the point of humility is to stop looking in the mirror to get our eyes off of ourselves and on to the other. So the second part of humility is, is the ability to consider the other freeing us to consider the other. Back to Philippians 2. We see, uh, we see these words here, don't we? That, uh, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. There were some religious leaders that tried to trick Jesus. They were doing this all the time, Right? But they, they wanted to trick Jesus into saying something sort of heretical or something. So they come to him and they, they, they send a, a delegate and they say, Rabbi, of all the laws and the commandments, which one's the greatest? And Jesus gave an answer that's been resounding for millennia. He said, love God with all your being and love your neighbor as yourself. That's what it all comes down to. That's the whole the sum of the of the commandments is to love god and to love neighbor so to the christian to the christian its humility involves looking outside ourselves getting our eyes off the mirror and looking and loving god and neighbor this can be so hard and culturally it has become more difficult i've got some more data here just showing you that over time we've seen this increase in scores on the narcissistic personality inventory. Some people have even called it a narcissism epidemic. That increasingly, we're becoming more and more self-focused as a society. And at the same time, we're getting less empathic. If you look at scores on empathy, those are going down over time. And here I come back to that thing I said, if we could all learn the American Sign Language for through it all, I keep my eyes on you. If we could really learn that, if we could live that, that would be humility. Getting our eyes off ourself, onto love of God and the others. You ever have those sort of teeter-totter moments? I had one of these this week. It's a moment where I sort of think of myself on a fulcrum, like I can either spend all day just thinking about myself, or I can do something better with my time. I had one of those this week. I'll tell you more about it as we wrap up in a few minutes, but, but it, it, it came from an email I had sent that was misunderstood, and, and I got sort of publicly shamed in an email back, and I. I felt like I wanted to justify myself and explain myself, and I was just sort of focused so much on myself, on myself. And it was one of those moments, and I very much realized, hey, I'm preaching on Sunday on humility. I have a moment here. I'm on the fulcrum. Which way am I going to let that teeter-totter go? Um, We have these moments, don't we? And I'll I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. Um, I was at a church a couple weeks ago where I was talking about positive psychology and Jane Kristoff, who's a former art professor at Portland State, came up afterwards and said, oh, my son is Nick Kristoff, who's a, another columnist for the New York Times. So I, I was going back the next week, so I thought, oh, I should read some about what he writes. And it turns out that Nick Kristoff, who's an op-ed columnist, has written about the same thing that I've been talking about, which is empathy and the need for empathy. So I really, I really loved reading his stuff. And he came up with some suggestions, which are on the next slide, for how we actually can build empathy. And I was looking at these. I don't know anything about Nick Kristof's faith. I don't know if he has one. But I looked at these and I thought, wait a minute, those are the things that the church fosters. I mean, uh, These things like wealth impeding empathy, well the church actually is a place for us to give sacrificially so we don't have to sort of let wealth impede so much, right? And then the the stories of sacrifice, prayer and meditation, a sense of awe which Christoph says happens by being in nature, humus, right? Being in the ground. Um, Service trips, all these things that happen in the context of a local faith community are things that help us build empathy and they help us love God and neighbor. At a time where it seems like the church is being accused of being irrelevant or sort of less important, it's fascinating to me that one of the huge social problems of our time, our difficulty with empathy, is actually happening in the church. Loving God and neighbor, getting our eyes off of ourselves. The third thing, the final thing I wanna say about the three dimensions of of humility is that, that we're teachable. I, I looked to my wife, Lisa, as a nice uh, exemplar of this. She, she, um, so we were both 20 when we got married, and we're celebrating our 40th anniversary. So you should never tell your spouse's age, but you might be able to figure it out. And, and she actually um, gave me permission to say that. But Lisa was having some pretty deep questions about faith a couple years ago. And the way she responded was to go to seminary. I don't know, There's probably not too many 59-year-olds with PhDs in sociology that enroll up for seminary, but I was really touched by that instinct, the idea that if I'm confused about a thing, if I'm unsure about a thing, I want to lean in and learn more. And um, that is humility, that ability to be teachable in the moments of life where we need to be taught the most. And this is honestly where I feel the most confused and challenged, especially around this idea of certainty. This word "certainty" has just caused me more and more challenge as I thought about it. On the one hand, I grew up singing the song um, "Blessed Assurance." I love the song, I, and and I want to be assured. And in fact, it's biblical. You look at Hebrews 11 and and, and you read the words of the author of Hebrews who says, now if faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. And then the author goes on and describes all the great heroes of the faith, Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Moses and Rahab and Samuel and David and how their faith has shaped the whole nature of the Christian story. I want that, I want assurance, I want certainty. But on the other hand, I fear that our certainty has spread too far. We're the people that seem to have a history of killing other people who believe differently than we do. Um, And I think sometimes we're too certain. We hold too much stock in the things that we are certain of that aren't as central to the faith as other things. So this is where I'm really struggling lately is my relationship with certainty. And this is sort of what I've come down to is what you see in the next slide here is, yes, we do have certainty. We have assurance in the character of God. The word kesed, right? It comes from the Old Testament uh, word, a Hebrew word about the loving kindness of God. We have complete confidence in the nature of God revealed in Jesus. But then there are lots of other sort of details of our doctrine that we hold more lightly that we're not as confident in and that we leave room for this great mystery of the church, the great mystery of of God to unfold. I want to leave you with two challenges as as we wrap up. Um, One is the challenge of self-confrontation. I I told you I'm a fan of David Brooks, and in this book, uh, The Road to Character, a book about humility, he writes this about humble people. He's gone around, he's studied humbled people, and this is how he sort of concludes, this is what he argues, he says, "'Humble people are more likely to assume "'that we are a deeply, all deeply divided selves, "'both splendidly endowed and deeply flawed. "'The inner struggle against one's own weaknesses "'is a central drama of life. True, "'Truly humble people are engaged in a great effort "'to magnify what is best in themselves "'and defeat what is worst, "'to become strong in the weak places.'" So, here's my challenge, here's one of my challenges. Um, Try some self-confrontation. Take a few moments and ponder something you may have wrong. It's not what we naturally do. We naturally ponder what we have right and others have wrong. But flip it on its head. Try that. Second second challenge for you to think about, uh, and that's to sort of foster a generous view of others. There's this thing in psychology, we call it the fundamental attribution here, where we tend to have a generous view of ourself and a less generous view of others. So, for example, if something good happens to me, let's say I get an A on a test or I get promoted at work, I tend to explain it internally, like I worked hard, I deserve it. If something good happens to someone else, I tend to explain it externally, like, oh, that must have been a really easy test if you got an A on it. Now, but when it comes to bad outcomes, we flip it the other way around. So something bad happens to me, I tend to explain it externally. Like, I got that traffic citation because the police officer just needed to fill a quota, right? But if something bad happens to you, it's your own fault. You know, it's sure a good thing that we have police officers to give tickets to people like you because you're just making the highway a dangerous place. So that's our natural tendency. And what I, my challenge is, try flipping it around. Try taking those teeter-totter moments and having generous views of the other. Probably because I was preaching about humility the following Sunday, that's what I tried to do this week in my sort of teeter-totter moment. I actually found a, a YouTube version of Holy and Anointed One, the praise chorus, and I just sat and I listened to it twice, and I just found myself sort of entering into a place of prayer. Um, what's the sign language I wanna learn? Through it all, my eyes are on you. That's really what the experience was as listening to that praise chorus. Through it all, my eyes are on you. Now, it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes I spend the day obsessing about myself anyway, but that moment I was able to release it, to let it go. And I think if we can foster generous views of others, foster a way of looking beyond ourselves to the others, we find more and more of these moments. So humility, it calls us to have a realistic view of ourselves, to consider the other, and to be teachable. I love that positive psychology is looking at this, but let me tell you that positive psychology is never gonna do it alone, because we need the church. Because the church is what teaches us to focus on Jesus. And that's the real key component. That's the catalyst for humility, getting our eyes off ourselves, loving God and neighbor. In your your relationships with one another, Paul writes, have the same attitude of mind Christ Jesus had. It's an absurd contrast. Have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus had. May it be so. Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, we struggle. We struggle to find our way forward without focusing overly much on ourselves. Help us today to look to Jesus through it all. To look to Jesus. Thank you so much for this passage that Paul writes about to Philippians that reminds us that in Jesus we see the true character, the true nature of humility. And though we, can, we can't assume that we can ever reach that sort of pinnacle, we do ask that you would continue to transform us, to make us more and more and more like your son Jesus, to be your humble servants. And it's in his name we pray, Amen.
0: Can you please help me appreciate Mark? Um, I have been blessed uh, to first meet Mark um, through his writings um, and then to meet him over uh, a meal and then to meet him uh, through his teachings here at Kess. And as I said, and it's really cool for me um, as well, as I'm reminded as a pastor, um, I don't do the listening stuff very well, because a lot of times I just, I, I hear this stuff, and my first, my first posture is to think, oh, this is really good for them, right? That's a really great message for them right there. And I, I just, maybe to close today, this is what I feel like I'm supposed to share, is that... <sighs> My job is, is, as the Holy Spirit is tapping on my shoulder and saying, this is for you, to realize that there's, that means I, there's something in that that I need to dive deeper into. Now, we're doing a, a course right now called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. And one of the things we're learning there is um, sometimes the Holy Spirit says, I, I have something for you to, to process. And my actual honest answer is, I don't know how to do that. And so that's my encouragement, my, my pastoral encouragement as we leave here today, as, as Mark shared with us, this idea of humility that this isn't just a, yep, as Christians, we're supposed to be humble, and I really appreciate the information shared, that, that there is a next step, that as we look at ourselves as the body of Christ and as we look at ourselves as a lamp that is supposed to be set on a hill and one with a fire that is flaming for all to see. That the way that that is seen is not just from the information that we share, but the humility that we show in our lives. And so church, friends, hear this cut to your heart, that this starts in our everyday life, the relationships that are closest to us in our world and our work relationships, the humility Love and serving others is at the core of what we do. I was reminded this week that as we look at the word believe, and we, when we think of believe, we think of words on a page maybe that are, are saying, this is what I believe. And I, they're, they're coming from my mouth, and I'm saying with my mouth, this is what I believe. But the actual root of the word believe comes from the idea of by life, that we wouldn't start with what we say we believe, that I would look at your life. And out of your life, I would say, this is what you believe. Instead of just saying it out there, we look at our lives. My my prayer is that for the community that is here at Kessed, that is what's seen—not just from our words said out, but from the lives that we live. And so, as we go today, as we go today, my prayer is for tension in your world. My prayer is for a wrestling that is to come, that you don't just leave. And maybe it's not right now, but maybe there's a time this week that you wrestle with this idea of, God has called me to humility. Paul is teaching it. This is a defining characteristic of the church. Do I embody that? And then let him guide you into what practical step is next in your world. Amen? Okay. I'm going to pray for us um, a little uh, globally as the church, and then we're going to send you out into the sunshine today, all right? (sighs) Jesus, today, I stand here, I am 35 years old, and I am more aware of what I don't know than ever. And maybe before in my life that was a point of something I needed to hide or, or maybe I needed to show more to others what I did know. But I think that you're showing me that that is a really safe and important and, and healthy place to be. Sitting in the tension, expecting you to move and being okay with what I don't know. Standing firm in what I do know but then allowing myself to be in the wrestle. And so Jesus I pray, Lord, that the Holy Spirit convicts each one of us individually in this week to come, that we take our next step forward in Christ-likeness. So, Jesus, we go out today loving our family, loving our neighbors, Lord, with the permission to love ourselves because we take the time, we take the energy, we take the effort, we take the heart to love you. We say all this knowing that you first loved us. So, Jesus, we thank you for this time. I thank you. Thank you for your church. I thank you for mark and wisdom, Lord. We're so in need of it. We love you. Oh, Lord, we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray.
1: And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Enjoy your week.